We are in Hebrews chapter 2, and um, from R. Kent Hughes, who has a commentary that I read, um, that I read, along with A.W. Pink and a few other things, um, they talk about who this letter was probably written to, given the internal testimony and the things that were going on at the time. Uh, many scholars believe that Hebrews was originally written to a group of Jewish Christians whose world was falling apart. Their Christianity did not give them privilege. It set them up for persecution and the loss of property and privilege. And now it could even cost them their lives. So if you look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32, and it does make these passages, you know, Hebrews 10, 32, it makes them come a little more alive. If you can, I mean, this is written for us, no doubt about it, but it was originally written to a particular people the author had in his mind, the Holy Spirit had in mind us as well. But if you can kind of, it, it helps to be able to put yourself into their situation of life, into their cultural context. Hebrews 10, 32, I'm just going to read through um, 34. And he writes, he says, But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Now, if we just read this as written to us, we would go, former days. Okay, I remember, and, and then I'd receive persecution. How did I receive persecution? And then you spiritualize it. But if you think about it, these were written to a particular people that were undergoing a particular time of persecution. I want to see if I, if I had the foresight to actually write this down. Yeah, there it is. Um, there were past persecutions in, in the year AD 49, which is when this uh, probably was written around this time a little after. Um, there appears to have been persecutions under Caesar Claudius. So th they were in the region of Rome. And there are historic things outside of the Bible that you can also see. It talks about um, Crestus, which we believe is what the name for Christ. And you see external evidences of Jesus living outside of just those that are found in the Bible, while the Bible is a very historical document itself. But during this time of persecution, um, this could very well be what he's referring to, that as, as, Jewish, uh, as Jewish Christians living around Rome, and they would begin to be converted. They would figure out and understand Jesus is the Christ. He died. He's resurrected. All these things, are, they're coming to acknowledging this. And so what do you do? So you're in church. You know, you're in synagogue. And um, you tell, sorry, my clock was about to fall. And you tell everyone about Jesus. And this is all you can tell people about. And you won't be quiet about it. You become somewhat zealous. You can't change this. You, you, you won't change your mind and you won't change the subject. So they get kicked out of synagogues. And when they're kicked out of synagogues, they lose the legal protection as an official religion. And then the state is able just to come down on them and come down on them. It does. Caesar Claudius in AD 49, when he saw them kicked out, then he began to prop. Um, um, confiscate their property and there was great persecution that started to happen so he's right so so if it's true and it does make exact sense that this is written to people who are going under that and he says in verse 32 that this was a few years ago remember the former days when after you were enlightened you endured a hard struggle and sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction sometimes being partners with those so treated for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully 
accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And then the author of Hebrews was writing, um, he goes on and he knows that um, Caesar Nero looms in the future. And the time under Caesar Nero was um, terrible. Um, some of the writings that talk about from Josephus that talks about the, um, in the historical writings of things that happened, especially around Jerusalem and just the things around Rome that um, Nero burned Rome apparently and then blamed Christians for it to try to have a, a scapegoat for it. And um, Nero would um, take Christians, put them on stakes around his gardens and light them on fire so that at night so that people could walk around the garden. And um, so we think, well, that's pretty hideous. I can't believe people used to be like that. And it's like, they're just people. People are still like that. There are people who, if they came into power and there's certain circumstances, certain conditions, they would do that and much more. So don't be lulled into a false sense of security that, um, you know, 2,000 years ago people were barbarians and now we're enlightened and we wouldn't do that kind of thing anymore. I think history has, you don't have to go back far. You can go back in my grandparents' lifetime and see, you know, millions of Jews being exterminated um, in, in terrible ways. So as we think about persecution, this was written to a church that was undergoing and about to undergo even worse persecution. So that if you then read Hebrews 12 verse 4 into that context, and it's written to a, to a small church, and when we're talking about, well, let me get ahead of myself, Hebrews 12 4, in your struggle against sin, okay, what does that mean? Your personal sin, people sinning against you, probably both. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now, we read that and say, yeah, we're supposed to be struggling with sin, but don't think your struggle so bad because you had not resisted yet to the point of shedding your blood. But if it's written to this little church that's about to experience great persecution, it's like, you have not yet resisted sin to the point of shedding blood, but you will. But you will. And so then it comes up alive. So as we're also thinking about if this was written to a particular church, um, and you think, well, this is the the author of the book of Hebrews, um, wrote a letter to the church. Imagine the numbers of people that would show up. I mean, you're talking John MacArthur, Tim Keller style thing, you know, Billy Graham type, you know, the gatherings where the book of Hebrews, for the first time, the letter of Hebrews is going to be read. That's, that's, tell us, tell us what it says. But it's most likely it may have been only 15, 20 people. 15, 20 people that were experiencing in a church that was huddled together, experiencing severe persecution from the state and from the culture. And then they know that it looks like it might get worse. What are we supposed to do? Has God abandoned us? Should we abandon the church? Should I just go and, and hide in a corner? Does God, what would God have us to do? Has he forgotten us? Does he still speak? And so there's a letter from God that comes from a prophet, from the author of Hebrews, and he's going to be read to church. What's God have to say to us? And you're waiting to hear what does God have to say. Then if you listen to the opening of the letter, listen to how it sounds again 
as everybody would have been quietly anticipating what is it that God has for us. And it starts like this. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did he ever say? And notice what he does. He uses their Jewish scriptures. He uses the Hebrew scriptures that they would know well to prove the excellence of Jesus Christ. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he says, the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes the angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions and you Lord laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands they will perish but you remain they will all wear out like a garment like a robe you will roll them up like a garment they will be changed but you are the same and your ends have your years have no end and to which the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Now, if we just stop right there a moment, one, just the opening line long ago at many times, it almost sounds like in a galaxy far, far away. It's just opening. It's this thing where he's, the author is drawing these people in and saying, you remember you are in this long list of line of people. You're not abandoned. You're not some new aberration. This is something that God continues to do, and he's speaking to you. And then he talks about these ministering spirits, these angels. What's the purpose of the angels? And what they would have thought were the angels were like this, this pinnacle of creation. They're, they're higher than people. Um, they exist forever. They don't die. We die. But their purpose, you would think, is, is, is to serve God, to serve God. But it says here, it's, it's to, to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Angels are here for you. So if you're in a tiny little church, you know, 12, 20 people who are maybe have experienced loss of property, persecution, there's worse persecution to coming, uh, and God is saying, you know, the angels, they're ministering spirits sent out for your sake. And he looks at you and says that. Now, we could read that today and say, that means no matter what I do, I don't have to wear a seatbelt. I don't have to wear a helmet when I ride my motorcycle. I can just walk in the middle of an intersection. And it's like, all right, and you're putting the Lord God to the test. Don't be surprised if you wake up in heaven and, and some angel looks at you and goes, idiot. I mean, I don't know that they say such things in, in heaven, but they could. 
Because that's what you'd be. Putting the Lord thy God to the test. He's given you a brain. He's given us all these things. He's given us wisdom. But he's also given us spiritual protection. And we have to be aware of that. That we are protected. All things therefore do work together for the good of those who love God. And are called according to his purposes. So since these things are true. He then goes on and he says to them. To us. Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. Lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So you may be under persecution, but you better pay attention to what you've heard because the Lord will show wrath on all these people. Don't think that you're going to escape that wrath if you don't pay close attention to it because we don't want justice either. We want the grace that's available in Jesus Christ. It was first declared um, by the Lord. And it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And then we come to our passage. One of the things in Hebrews that's so wonderful, if you, if you kind of keep reading through it, is the author does this. He tells you great things about God. And then he says, and there's things you need to do. You're admonished. You need to pay attention. You need to follow. You need to do these things because of who God is. Let me tell you who God is and what your response needs to be to it. So Hebrews is not just some theology book. It's not just a, a lecture about God. Neither is this a lecture about God. This is God speaking to us through his word and saying, these are things I want you to know. And so therefore, this is the type of person I want you to be. This is how I want you to respond. This is what I want you to do because I need you to know who I am. And need you know who you are in Christ Jesus. So in verse 5, where we come to our passage today, he says, Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little while lower, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering and death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And we're going to stop here um, in the letter this morning. But there's one thing you might not have picked up on because we've said it so much this morning and we say it so often. But this is the first time in the book of Hebrews that the name of Jesus is used. And if you go back and you look, and I've gone through my Bible and I was First time I read that in the commentary, I was like, that's not right. I go back, it's like, but well, how do we know we're talking about Jesus? And so I go back and I circled um, everywhere he's called Son. And he says, God has spoken to us by his Son in verse 2. And then in verse 5, you are my Son. He shall be to me a Son. In verse 8, but of the Son, he says. And then in verse 10, you, Lord, laid the foundation. And then we get to chapter 2, and he goes on, and he said, mentions the Son of Man, but then he says, namely, Jesus. 
And there's going to be a reason for that. And typically when you see, I mean, very more, much more often than not, when you see the name Jesus in the New Testament outside the Gospels when they're speaking directly to him or of him, it's um, the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ. Rarely do they use just the name Jesus. Um, the name Jesus um, particularly goes to his incarnation, to his humiliation in becoming a man. So when we see the name Jesus here, um, it's used particularly because he's saying he was made a little lower than the angels. And so this is talking about him, his person, as he lived a life. And later Hebrews talks about him suffering the things that we've suffered and he can sympathize with us. So if you're going through things, whether it be persecution or it's trials, He's been through things, too, so he has the ability to be able to go through them with us in a way that um, others might not be able to experience. So let's just go back to verse 5 and see that it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come. So what we see is this word subjected is an interesting thing because what it means is it's a military term and it means to arrange troops in a military division under the command of a leader. To subject is really to put people under your, I mean, it, the word English word works good for it. You've subjected people to it. You're my subjects. You know, these things are under my feet. These things are under my control. And he says, so it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. So then we have this word, world. And so the word world, everybody, you might know if you know a little bit of Hebrew stuff, that the word is cosmos. And so when you're talking about the cosmos, the cosmos is a world system. And this world system will not be redeemed. And it's pretty clear that the cosmos is going to be um, done away with. But the word in Greek behind this word world is not cosmos. It's oikomene, oikomene. And that has the root word oikos. Now, there is a Greek yogurt named Oikos. And I don't know why they call it Oikos, but that's Greek for home. Maybe they're saying this is like homemade Greek ice cream like Rick probably makes. I don't know. So it's like Oikos. So when you think of that, it's home. So Oikomene, it has to do with the inhabited world, uh, the home world. That sounds odd. It has to do with, the, it's not just a world system, but it's, a, it's, it's, it's your home. It's this world to come. It's this inhabited world to come. It's not a whole system that he's talking about, but he is talking about a system, but it'll be a home. It'll be a world in which righteousness dwells, God exists, there's personal relationships, and in that world to come that God's going to set up, all things will be subjected to him. And it's not to angels that that world has been subjected. And then he says, it's been testified somewhere, which I always like the way that it says. Somewhere it says, you know, it's, um, it's, it's Psalm 8 where it says this. And then some commentators have said, um, it was so obvious where it was from that he didn't say, go to everyone, turn your Bibles to Psalm 8. He's just like, you know, in the Psalms it says. Um, so if you, let's go to Psalm 8 and see what that context is because it's, it's somewhat surprising. What, what God is saying, because you, you kind of think, you know, he's talking about one thing, and then you see, you know what, there's a little more to it. It's not a, a long psalm, but it's, it's really cool. starts off the same way it, it ends. Um, o Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. If you go to verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's the point of the psalm. It's not hard to figure out. Everything in the middle is why. 
he says that. So look what he does. Oh, Yahweh, notice all the caps and stuff. Oh, Yahweh, our Lord, Adonai. How majestic is your name in all the earth. What causes him to do this? You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And here it is. When I look at your heavens. So he's out at night. Look clear night. Looks up at the stars. And it's before we had light pollution. Imagine what he could have seen as he just looks into the heavens. And it causes him to glorify God. The moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? How much more do we know? I mean, goodness. It's as if we had cameras that we set outside our galaxy. And I looked back and um, got this galaxy spinning around, 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 around. Immeasurably huge. Immeasurable number of stars in it. And then we look out into the little dark places in the sky with a Hubble telescope. And look, and there's clusters of galaxies. <laughs> the number of galaxies is is unfathomable with an unfathomable number of stars it, it's almost as much money as the government is spending it's just unbelievable how much is out there and then when we he sees that we see that now it, you would think back then oh, they look at the sky and they're like look at those stars well eventually we'll learn about them and we'll see it's not so much it's not so big um but it's it's like if you've ever been to somewhere um is like you go to, I've heard the Grand Canyon is one of those things that doesn't disappoint, <laughs> you know, but there's lots of things that you go to see and it's like, nah, it's not as big as I thought it was going to be. You know, you go, it's something that you've only seen on TV or something, and, but I've never been to Grand Canyon, but everybody has been has said, yeah, it's bigger than you think it is. And, um, and the heavens is like that. The heavens are like that. It's the more we see, the bigger it is. And then the interesting thing is, the deeper and smaller you go, the bigger it is. It's like you can go way out or you can go way in. It's amazing. And then when we see how far out, if you ever seen one of those um, the, the the artist renderings they do where you go so far out and you start zooming in and zooming, say we're we're smaller than Horton Hears a Who spec. I mean that's that's huge compared to what we are with the whole universe. What is my, what is man? That you're mindful of him. Now, that's one thing to just look up at the stars and get that, but then to see we've sent things out there and seen deeper, and it's even more so. What is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the sea, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So when we read this, and you read it the first time, and you read it as they would have in the Old Testament, it's like, that's talking about us. That's talking about people. And then as they start to study it and think about it, it's like, all right, it's particularly talking about Adam. You made him for a time lower than the angels. Okay, but that's weird. So maybe this is talking about, because then it says a son of man, so that can't be Adam, because Adam was not a son of anybody. So then maybe it's talking about people in general. Okay, so you have made what is man that you're mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him. You've made him a little lower 
than the heavenly beings, and the Septuagint says than the angels. And so one of the things we look at, a few things, one, the Son of Man, that's used of Jesus all in the New Testament. It's his favorite self-designation. So when people look back at this, this is a messianic psalm talking about Jesus Christ. But it's also still talking about us. And when it says made a little lower than, so it could be talking about Adam, but then it says the Son of Man, so that can't be talking about Adam anymore. It's talking about us, but particularly it's looking forward to Jesus Christ. And Hebrews pulls this together and, and has this make sense. So that you have to remember when we're looking at this, the word made lower is in, in Hebrew and in the Greek translation of it, it does not mean when I made you, I made you in this position lower. What it means is I brought you from here and I brought you lower. I made you lower. Okay, so you existed in a higher position and I, des I descended you. Okay, so he's talking about someone who was in a high position and then was brought lower. And so we can see where this could, this could be Adam, but it also could be Jesus. So the solution to this is in the New Testament is Jesus is the second Adam. And so as he's talking to these people in this little church in Hebrews, the church in, in Rome probably, he's saying, um, I know the world's against you. I know this world system is railing against you. I know that right now it doesn't look like the world is going to be subjected to you, but it is. So when I first read this, it's obviously all about Jesus. The world's going to be subjected to Jesus. That doesn't right now seem like it's subjected to Jesus, but it will be. And that's a true point. But the other point he's making is we will rule in the coming world. We don't know what it's going to look like, but we know we'll be kings. We don't know what that means because the eye has not seen or is entered into the mind of man the things that await us. But what we do know is rather than us currently being under subjection of things now, it's going to be turned around and that we will be rulers. And so what we see in Hebrews when we get to this and we say, um, verse 6, 2, 6, it's been testified somewhere what is man that you're mindful of him the son of man that you care for him you know think about this again it's being is talking about us you made him for a little while lower than the angels you crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet now i'm putting everything in subjection he left nothing outside of your control but at present we don't see this it's right right it doesn't make any sense it's talking about us we don't see everything in subjection to him to man but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Jesus is the one that's going to redeem all this. Jesus is the one that's going to bring the original purpose of man into fruition. Crowned, and he, where do you see Jesus? Crowned with glory and honor. Why is he crowned with glory and honor? Because of the suffering of death. And we see that in Philippians. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what Jesus has done is he has won this for us by his suffering and death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So tasting death can sound like, you know, I tasted it, okay, and it's a sampling of it. But in Greek and Hebrew, when they would talk about tasting something, they meant complete experience. He's tasted it. 
we use it a little bit differently. But he's tasted death forever. He's completely experienced death for everyone, for his church, for all those who believe in him. And it's by grace because we didn't deserve it. So Jesus comes when we don't deserve it. He dies for us when we don't deserve it. He's raised again and we don't deserve it. We're hidden in him and we don't deserve it. And the world will be subjected to us because we're hidden in him and we don't deserve it. But it all comes down to grace and who Jesus Christ is. And therefore, who we are and who we will be in him. So as we go through difficult times and the world goes through this trial, as there will be other trials after this. They can, it will be personal, they may be political, they may be communal, they may, who knows what stuff might await us. But it's guaranteed there's gonna be something and there'll be things that are gonna be global and there are gonna be things that come right down to you personally. And it may be something that personally affects you that doesn't really hurt anybody else but you. Or it may be something like we're going through now. And what Jesus is saying, what the Holy Spirit is saying to us is, especially as we take communion with him, is he says, remember who I am. And for right now, you don't see that all things are subjected to you. You seem to be a victim. You seem to be helplessly tossed to and fro on this ocean. And, and then later in Hebrews, it says, you know, he's an anchor. But I don't see that. All I see is this. If you, if you have to have an anchor, that's because something's causing you to drift. Pay much closer attention unless you drift away from what is coming. And these problems can cause us to turn our eyes from Jesus. Just like on this, in the storm when Peter jumped out of the boat, focused on Christ, walks on the water. He begins to notice the storms around him. Begins to sink. Jesus doesn't say, ha ha, you deserve to drown. He reaches down, grabs him and says, ye little faith, why did you, why did you doubt? I mean, I don't know what goes on in Jesus' mind. But as a person, he must have just been so, I, don't, I guess the word proud, but I don't know. He, with Peter, look what he's doing. This is awesome. You know, one of these foul creatures... <laughs> that I'm redeeming has so much faith that my Father in Heaven is enabling him to walk on water like he's doing with me. Awesome. Come on, Peter. Don't look at that, Peter. <laughs> right here, Peter. Focus. Oh, come on, Peter. <sighs> you little faith, why did you doubt? It's like, that's us. And I just know the Holy Spirit at times. God the Father, God the Son looks at us and just goes, oh, look at him go. <laughs> look at him go. Oh, ah! Grieving the Holy Spirit sometimes. All in his control. But at the same time, my pastor, Charlie Tyler, used to say, um, you'd see some Christians doing something and it wasn't quite right or they were getting something wrong. And it's just like he said, don't criticize. When you see dogs playing chess, don't criticize their strategy, okay? So if you kind of get like, some dogs are playing chess. Oh, I wouldn't have made that move. No dogs playing chess! Man, come on! And so I think that's what we need to recognize more is as we go through things and we see other people go through things, or even worse, we see what other people make us go through because of what they're going through, um, we'll critique that really bad. And then our response becomes sinful. And so what we kind of have to do is just be amazed 
that in this world there's any love, there's any peace, there's any, and that's grace of the Holy Spirit, even with people who aren't believers. It is hard enough to get a group of believers to love each other and be kind to each other under all circumstances. Then you start dealing with people who aren't believers, I don't know how they have any peace anyway, all the time. Anyway, thank God they use our God-given Christian theological perspective to give them reason for living that they don't even think about. They, they depend on the God they deny to give them any purpose for living at all anyway. And I don't know how much sense that just made, but if you talk to somebody about justice, you talk to somebody about peace, um, you talk to somebody just really about the way things ought to be, um, why do you have any reason for the way things ought to be? Why is your, your morality better than somebody else's morality? If you die and that's it, then it's all nothing anyway. I mean, there's no more. This, if, if we die and this is all there is, you have no memory of this. This is, this is if it never happened. You know, it's, it's worse than if it never happened because you had something happen and it didn't. Um, but it's gone. So no wonder people kill themselves. I want this to be over. Okay. You know, hopelessness. It's only by the, 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 the common grace of God in this world that, everybody, that anybody lives and has hope. And so what we need to be proclaiming to people is, let me give you a reason, the true reason for hope. Let me tell you really what this world is about. It's not our opinion. It's not something that we're necessarily going to debate people with. It's a proclamation. And people are either going to, and you can interact with people, give a reason for the hope within you. You have this whole you know, thing where you talk to people, and it makes sense. But don't give up the foundation of our faith, which is God exists in three persons. He sent his son to die for us. Jesus Christ is exalted. We too will be exalted. We were created in splendor and holiness and Adam was the crown of creation. He had everything he could possibly have. It was all good. It was all perfect. God created him in such a way that he did not have to sin and yet of his own free will he chose to sin, plummeting the entire world into sin. And then the second Adam, Jesus comes. And he succeeds where the first Adam failed because he's God. Had to be God. In order to have a more perfect man, Jesus had to become the first man so that when we're in him, we're now being perfected and we become perfectible. And we will one day be as he is. That's what's happening to us. Trials that we go through for the perfecting of our faith. Disappointments that we have for the perfecting of our faith. Um, death that we experience. Um, of loved ones and people um, is for the perfecting of our th faith. All these things are working together for the good. What's the good? And the good is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. These things are allowed. They're not just allowed. They are ordained by God in such a way that when we go through these things, it's for the perfecting of our faith. And how that works I don't know exactly, but I do know you pay much closer attention to what we've heard. And as you go deeper into the word, as you go closer, as you chase after Jesus in the storm, Peter learned, we learned a lot more about faith when Peter sank. We learned a lot more about Jesus when Peter sank than when he ran on the water. I mean, if he ran on the water and high-fived Jesus and they walked on off, it'd have been like, you know, we ought all be able to do that all the time. What about the rest of those yahoos on the boat? You know, so the failure of Peter 
teaches us great things. And so, I don't know, when you see dogs playing chess, don't critique the strategy. Just be amazed that God's working with us at all and that he is, and there's a bigger plan. There's more to life. We walk by faith, not by sight. There is more going on than meets the eye. So you make sure that that's the world you're, you are conforming yourself to because this world is passing away. The things of this life are passing away. You can love these things. You can worship these things. You can conform yourself to this life. And this life is going to be gone. There's much better stuff that awaits us. So he says... Look to these things. So let's pray. Father God, we don't know how to act like we ought to act. We don't know how to pray like we ought to pray. So we're thankful that the Spirit prays for us with groanings too deep for words that Jesus Christ is seated at your right hand praying prayers of intercession for us. We don't know what to do as a church. We know we're told to meet. We know sometimes it can be dangerous to get in the car and drive in an ice storm. We don't tell people to risk their lives to get to church. But if we lived in Antarctica... We doggone better figure out how to worship God in ice storms. That's all you got. So we pray that you would teach us how to live in this cultural moment. That you would teach us what it means to be the church. What it means to, to know that no matter what happens, even if we were to actually be persecuted to the point of the plundering of our property, the Gestapo kicking in our doors and dragging out our children, that where we have nothing to do, nothing to say, grab to dragged to gas chambers, whatever it may be, tied to a stake and set on fire unless we deny the faith. Lord, we pray that maybe this little thing that's happening to us right now will help to get us into a place where one day our sons and daughters will be able to face the flames saying my God is greater than anything that you have. This life is temporary and the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared to the glory that awaits us. So Lord, we pray you keep our eyes focused on you, that we would be able to yell out to others in the storm that there is something greater and higher, that there is purpose, there is meaning, there is hope, that for those who have faith, there is nothing that can ultimately defeat us. A thousand will fall at our right and 10,000 at our left. You are in control. Nothing is happening that is outside of the word of your power. Help us to trust as we suffer, as we fail in our faith, as we are confused. Help us to remember you are the author of peace. That if we want to know more, then we need to dig in. Means of grace. The reading, the preaching, the hearing, and thank God the singing of your word. If I die because people around me were singing your praises, I can't think of a better testimony. But I pray that would not happen. We pray that you would protect us, and most of all, you would give us great peace, and you would give us endurance and faith in, the, in any opposition. And that it wouldn't be about us, it would be about you, as we would be humble, seeking to live quiet and peaceful lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's all just stand together. Rob comes down and sings for us. We'll close before communion with a mighty fortress. <coughs> He's our guide.